Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm actually required to say that. So now that that has been said, let's get down to brass tacks. I've got a message for you from the one and only Andrew W.K. Be nice, be honest, party, and don't hate on Mr. Rogers. Those who would scoff at Mr. Rogers or scoff at me, perhaps, you know, more rightfully so, all they're doing, and I relate to this because I've done it too, is distancing themselves from feeling because feeling is very intense. And feeling that you're not in control of is even more intense. It takes a lot of courage to let your heart be open enough to be moved, uh, especially uh, against your will. So people keep things at bay. People keep experiences at a distance, especially if the person seems very intense. All I'm trying to do is encourage people to trust me enough to let me move them, to let this party power move them. It's bullseye. Coming up, Andrew W.K. talks more about Mr. Rogers, plus his new album, You're Not Alone. He's been at it for a while now, performing music, speaking, recording in the studio, talking up the virtues of parties and partying wherever he goes. But is there an end in sight? I have not abandoned this particular mountain that I'm climbing, and I haven't reached its peak yet. You know, I may never. I may be like Sisyphus, pushing this boulder up Party Hill, forever wondering if there is a peak to reach and if I could ever do it. Then our friend Bill Hader. He's starring in the new HBO show, Barry. He also just hosted Saturday Night Live. It's his first time back on the show in five years. You know, and Lauren Michaels, to his credit, came down before the show and went, you relax. (laughs) He's like, stop hurrying, have fun. And finally, Van Morrison doesn't really like to perform live, but that didn't stop him from making a nearly perfect live album. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Have you ever been to an Andrew W.K. show before? I ask because it's actually, it's like a transformative experience. For one thing, there's the music. This kind of bombastic, insane, maximalist pop metal. It's usually in a major key. It's up-tempo. It's almost always in some way about partying. And then on stage, there's Andrew himself, easily the most genuine and sincerely thrilled-to-be-there person you have ever met. The crowd is enthralled. They're totally present. Eventually, a circle pit covers every inch of the floor. And whether or not you're a fan of rock isn't really the point. When Andrew is on stage, you feel a genuine connection to him. And that connection extends to pretty much every other person in that room. Andrew W.K. has a new album called You're Not Alone, his first in almost a decade. 
it's full of that inspiring message, sometimes in songs, sometimes in spoken word. And Andrew reveals a lot of himself in the record, too. Here's a track from You're Not Alone. It's called Music is Worth Living For. Andrew W.K., welcome back to the show. It's great to get to talk to you again. Thank you, Jesse. Okay, this has been a long time now. This is 2018. Wait. Well, this has been 12, 17 years or something. Oh, since our... the first time we talked. Yeah, we've been partying together for closing in on two decades. <laughs> um... Uh, well, congratulations! Congratulations on the new record. I'm I'm so happy to get to hear it. Thank you. Um, what What do you What were you doing these last eight years that you weren't putting out records? Partying. Yeah, 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 yeah. What? I think you were. I think that you were um, maybe obsessing over this record. Is that possible? Uh, obsessing in reverse. I'd say. Um, So I didn't have a record to obsess over. So I was obsessing about its absence to some degree. But the obsession seemed to amplify the unpleasant qualities uh, of those frustrations. So eventually I accepted that it didn't exist. And then next thing I knew, it did. That's fantastic. I mean, I feel like your career hasn't, you know, your career has grown so extraordinarily over the past decade or so, um, simply as the, you know, the way the internet has changed has allowed you to be beloved for the kind of guy you are in addition to the kind of records you make. So it it must be like almost a little scary to put out music and remember that, um, you know, you're risking something when you do that. Yeah, it's a very good point, and it's it is a scary feeling. It's scary, like going down a roller coaster hill. Though there's excitement in that fear, and you're acknowledging that 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 scary side of things um, from an empowered place, a place of choice. You know, I I chose to do this to some extent. I mean, going back to what you mentioned before, uh, I've been quite blown away by the fact that I'm here at all um, after this many years, that there's a new album after this many years, that any of this is held together enough to still continue on and exist in any kind of uh, certifiable form. But I think it is just uh, not so much about me, but as you said, other people finding value in this or finding something that they resonate with in in different ways beyond the music. Of course, I'd like people to like this music, but I am a representative of a party feeling, and the music is one way to get to that feeling. Even I myself could be a mechanism, a tool by which people use to access that feeling, and the feeling is paramount. That's that's all that matters. When you were, you know, we we've talked in the past about your the beginning of your career when you were playing shows in 
art galleries or whatever in New York using uh, just a karaoke machine and a wired microphone. Um, when you were doing that, were you already trying to achieve the same things that you feel like you are trying to achieve now 20 years later? Yes, it, and I still haven't achieved it, which I guess is why I'm still doing it. I'm still climbing the same mountain. We're still trying to hit that same bullseye. Um, you hope that th- through practice and perseverance, you develop skills that allow you to get to that place more accurately. But uh, I have not abandoned this particular mountain that I'm climbing, and I haven't reached its peak yet. You know, I may never. I, I may be like Sisyphus pushing this boulder up Party Hill and forever wondering if uh, uh, there is a peak to reach and if I could ever do it. But staying engaged in the effort has given my life a kind of meaning and purpose that, uh, you know, allows me to keep going and, and, and get up every day or, you know, every night, depending what the schedule is. When you were 18 or 19 years old and you started doing this, what was inspiring you to do it? I mean, were there things that made you feel the feeling that you wanted to create when you were on stage? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, from a very early age, around probably age four, I started to realize that music specifically and piano and the experiences I was having with those early piano lessons and my piano teachers, that music could be meaningful on a level that nothing else in life for me at that time was. It could change the way it felt for me to exist. It changed the way my body felt. It changed the way my mind felt. And it introduced me to a part of myself that I liked. It made me want to to be a person. And uh, I realized that wasn't a fluke. It was something you could rely on. That music could always do that for me. And I hope for other people. But I, for certainly for me. And I became obsessed with, with this. I didn't know at the time how you could make that feeling, that life-affirming euphoric type of optimism, the centerpiece of a career. But I knew I wanted to be around it and, and, and focus on it as much as I possibly could. And, and, and in the early days of Andrew W.K. As, as a clarified mission, part of me thought I would, you know, believed wholeheartedly that I would do it forever. And another part of me couldn't believe that I would do it for more than one day. Um, and I was in a trance, I think, when this first began, when you and I first met. It's hard for me to remember exactly what I was thinking. I remember what I was feeling, but I had removed some large amount of thought process, of mental considerations, uh, my mind and the kind of, I don't know, ebbing and flowing of, of, of doubtful thoughts had to be completely shut off. And I had to follow this instinct that was completely irrational and illogical in order for me to believe that I could actually do this. I had to just remove my own almost my own self in favor of the the service to this quest. I want to play a song from your first EP, and it's called We Want Fun. It's one of my faves of your whole catalog. Still is, all these years later. And uh, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about recording the original version of this song. Okay, yes. Well, we should point out, as I, I think you're sort of uh, in the process of doing that, there are two different versions of We Want Fun. There's and, one from one of the Jackass movies that, that Rick Rubin produced, if I remember correctly. That's correct. 
And then, this is like the this is like the homemade version. <laughs> yeah, this was the one that I worked on initially. And actually, we did the Rick Rubin one. Essentially, just built on top of this one, it, it, the actual recording itself. We did not. I've always was very adamant. Uh, I think because it felt so defeating to to work so hard on recordings and then treat them as demonstrations or the dreaded demo, which is a word I don't, it makes me nauseous to hear because I put all that work in. So I don't want to abandon that. It wasn't like a practice recording. So even in, on, on all my work, recorded work, whatever I begin recording a song, that's going to be the recording. Even if we stack tons and tons of layers of additional instruments and even redo parts, I'm not going to abandon that. It's like a tree, you know, when it's growing that comes from that beautiful seed. The roots are put down, the trunk goes, and then it can branch off and f- flowers can bloom and fruit can, can descend and, and birdies can move in and make nests along with squirrels and things. And, but you don't have to, you know, chop down the tree or abandon it and let it die just to build, grow the same tree again. So this uh, this 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 original version of the song, you know, all I remember really working on my 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 real memory from this song was working on those drums, those those layers of tom tom drums pounding from the beginning and really want, you know, you're presented with a vision, a sonic vision, which is an odd experience, but anyone can do it. I mean, anyone can close their eyes and hear a song that you love, right? Especially songs that are, are very familiar to us all, whether it's a, a, a melody, a, a timeless song like Happy Birthday, or an actual recorded song that you're very familiar with. You can even hear the timbre, the quality of the production of a of recording in your mind's ear. And a lot of the way I try to work, with, or the way it happens with my music is, I imagine a song that doesn't exist. You know, this but I hear the whole thing. And then it's a matter of can I make this audible? So it all started with those drums and how can I make this drum sound that I'm hearing in my mind's ear come to life? Let's listen to We Want Fun from Andrew WK's first EP at the very beginning of the twenty first century. How many tracks do you think ended up in that recording? Well, You're going to have to ballpark it. I don't know if you remember exactly. Well, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens, and then all of those would be sort of bounced down to free up more space, and then dozens and dozens more. And you relinquish some amount of control with that, but it was a more is more approach. I, I it, never, it just seemed so obvious that if you had the means to record more, you should. I didn't ever understand and still to this day don't really uh, understand the idea of holding back in those cases. It's just what it's supposed to sound like to me. Um, I want that sound of every instrument playing, um, this maximalist approach. That's why I like rock music specifically, because there's 
you're starting from a point of amplification. You're starting from a point of, of, of size and intensity and volume and power. Why play the drums lightly if you can play them really hard? And why sing quietly if you can sing with this full-blown, full-throated effort uh, and intensity? So the the feeling I'm trying to conjure up, it's it's I suppose it's very, uh, I mean, it's earnestly based on the way I've always wanted to feel about life. You know, my music is coming from uh, an aspirational place. This is not how I naturally feel. I'm making music that's attempting to make me feel the way I wish I felt, which is amazing. And like I'm staying on top of the world and it's the first day of summer or the last day of school or you, I just, you know, kissed my first girl or, or those that everything was great in that moment. And if everything was great, what would be the song, the soundtrack to that moment? Yeah, I mean, I, maybe the word for it is ecstatic. Um, Absolutely, yeah. You know, a kind of uh, a, a a kind of blind intensity uh, that's not intended negatively, but a kind of like a state of of kind of ecstatic presence. It's you know, I've heard it from people who are really into uh, l- like electronic dance music. Uh, I, I'm not into electronic dance music myself, but like you hear it from people that they, you know, after a certain amount of time on the floor, they get that feeling. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I relate to dance music very, very much because of that, especially long form uh, DJ sets that build up that are not just changing every two, three minutes or even less, but a, a good four hour hardcore intense trance set. You can definitely get that. I've always liked four on the floor because it seems like that's an an instant. There's a entrainment with all of reality around that pulse that pulls you into position to receive this jolt of truth. And again, you're not maybe, maybe there are people out there that get it for a full hour. I'm not going to say there's not. I mean, there's people that that claim they can have orgasms through sexual intercourse for six hours, right? So. To each their own. I don't know if I could handle even getting more than a few seconds at a time of this. I mean, it, to to experience, to not know truth through intellectual apprehension, but to experience it as a fact from the inside out is is very intense. <laughs> yeah, and rock I, music and the and and my party mission. That's that's all. It's going for that same thing. After a short break, you'll hear the rest of my interview with Andrew W.K. He's been compared to Mr. Rogers in the past. He'll tell me why he takes that as the highest of compliments. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Squarespace. Destiny is calling. It says you need a new website. Easily create a website by yourself with the help of 24-7 award-winning customer support. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code BULLSEYE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Keep dreaming, but make it a reality with a website from Squarespace. I'm Linda Holmes. There's more stuff to watch these days than you can ever get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we give you the lowdown on what's worth your time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the singer and artist Andrew W.K. 
His newest album, You're Not Alone, is out now. I want to ask you about uh, the role of your wife, Sherry Lilly, in uh, your career. Um, she makes she's she's made her own dance music, um, and she is, uh, I think, of a full fledged member of your band these days, as something that does not exist in a lot of rock bands. Uh, which is uh, she's basically your hype man. Yeah, hype woman. Um, she is. That's how. And, that's how we met. Really? Yeah, because I had been looking for a hype member, man or woman. Um, I hadn't really gotten that far to visualizing who could actually fill that role. I just wanted the idea that there could be someone else up on stage with me who was completely untethered to an instrument or to even a particular role that could could go and do whatever needed to be done in response to the need at hand, to, re- to respond to the crowd at a certain moment, to respond to the song, to help cover all the vocal parts too. But someone that could basically headbang with me, that could keep up with what I was doing. And the band has always been very high energy, but they have other things they're trying to do, like play a guitar, for example. And even I'm trying to play keyboard or sing. So I was taking lessons from an amazing, uh, really heavy metal singing teacher named Melissa Cross, and this was back around, I don't know, 2005 or so, and uh, the, the the person before me, uh, when I would come in for my lesson, the student before was, was Sherry, and I saw her, and I talked to her, and I started asking questions about her, and I asked our teacher, Melissa Cross, if she would ask Sherry if she would ever consider being uh, a singer in my band, a hype woman. And the rest, as they say, is party history. Let's take a listen to one of the singles from my guest, Andrew W.K.'s new album, You're Not Alone. Uh, This one features his wife, Sherry, really getting down in the video, uh, which I can't recommend enough. Uh, It's called Ever Again. People say that we're born with a purpose. To make our dreams come true But if our dreams start to crumble They can bury us Gotta dig yourself out And push on through They say that nobody changes But I'm living proof that they do Because I found the answer And you can find the answer too Andrew, are you comfortable with people thinking what you do is ridiculous? Uh, yeah, well, in the sense that that seems like a perfectly rational response. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wish everyone liked it. I wish everyone felt like it was the most amazing thing in the world. Sometimes I wish that I felt like that. But it's not about that. That's not, that's not, I, I'm not allowed to be concerned with that past a certain point. I have to compartmentalize even even my reactions to very kind and generous praise uh, so as to not allow it to, uh, you know, stand in the way of the work. I mean, I definitely, one of the things that I feel like I felt pretty quickly listening to your that first record almost 20 years ago um, was I think I was just in a place where I was able to really quickly get rid of the idea that because it was 
ridiculous. And I don't mean in a judgmental way, but like there is a certain absurdity to these layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of sound and intensity and intensity and intensity of feeling that just because that was the case didn't make it not worthwhile and didn't make it a joke. Even in the times when it made me smile or laugh at its sort of audacity, uh, it was that was okay. And it seems like part of the story of your career is you're out here doing this thing and you've done it faithfully for 15 or 20 years now. And as with each passing year, more people are like, oh, okay. So it's it's huge. It's absurd. It's it's wild. It's insane. Uh, but it's real. That it's not snide or insincere or a joke or anything like that. That you've kind of like a you've kind of like convinced people a few at a time every day for seventeen years. It, one of my idols is Santa Claus. And any person who wasn't familiar with Santa Claus could take one look at this guy in this red velvet suit, who's perhaps a bit chubby, big fluffy beard, riding around on a flying sleigh with reindeers delivering toys and think this is ridiculous. But at the heart of all that, which could be considered absurd, there's something pure and sincere and directed towards joy, directed towards that laughter with tears in the eyes that transcends emotion, happiness for no particular reason other than you exist. And that's all I'm trying to do. You know, somebody on Twitter, I, I mentioned that I was going to be talking to you today. Somebody on Twitter compared you to me to uh, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. And, you know... <laughs> Your your milieu is different, you know. I think he was a he was a Lutheran or a Presbyterian minister. Um, you work in nightclubs, but you know I've been watching a lot of Mister Rogers lately because I have Mister Rogers aged kids, mm. and you know I understand where that sentiment comes from because if there's anything that uh, if there's anything that Mr. Rogers appeared to aspire to, it was a kind of unconditional, you know, love and acceptance, which, you know, feels like what you are trying to create when you have a concert or even, uh, you know, even when you even when there's a, you know, when a tweet pops up that says party tip or whatever, you know what I mean? Like a kind of, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers is is just as absurd well, that's, I, would, I take that as one of the, the, the greatest compliments or comparisons someone could, could make, and I don't dare say that it's the case. I still have a lot of work to do, and I don't dare say that I'm in the realm of his greatness, but he, he had a huge impact on not just me as a child, but also my mom when she was a child for, for all kinds of beautiful reasons. And uh, to, to, to think that we're serving the same... God or the same purpose or the same feeling is, is is extremely encouraging. I mean, I am. I just want to be a representative of 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 goodness 
I mean, what else are you going to do, you know, with the, with your time in life? You know, you have to pick some noble effort. You have all these these abilities as a human being, and, and t- time and time again, we're told by the greatest human beings down throughout history that this is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to devote yourself to. Find some way that makes sense for you to serve this light, this this sensation, and you know. <laughs> I wanted to end that with something quite succinct. Ugh. It's okay, Andrew. We're doing oh, pretty good. Well, thanks. <laughs> there was, there was some, hold on. Let me. There was something about that. About that, though. What, uh, man. About, about you know, I got so caught up in thinking about Mister Rogers. There was something about the way you put that, though, that had led me to another thought. Um, just give me one second, see if I can track it back down, since we do have the power of editing here. Um, just forgive me. Uh, oh, those who would scoff at Mr. Rogers or scoff at me, perhaps, you know, more rightfully so, all they're doing, and I relate to this because I've done it too, is distancing themselves from feeling because feeling is very intense. And feeling that you're not in control of is even more intense. It takes a lot of courage to let your heart be open enough, open enough to be moved, uh, especially uh, against your will. So people keep things at bay. People keep experiences at a distance, especially if the person seems very intense. And uh, I am all I'm trying to do is encourage people to trust me enough to let me move them, to let this party power move them. Well, Andrew, thanks again for coming back on the show, and thanks for being a pal all these years. It's really great to get to talk to you, and I hope that we, I hope I hope you can come on the show every couple of years until we're both very old men. Thank you, Jesse. Yeah, well, we have a long way to go, but so far, so good. Andrew WK, ladies and gentlemen, he kicks off a huge tour this month with dates all over the world. Go to the Bullseye page on MaximumFun.org for more information. Trust us, you're going to want to go to one of these shows. Uh, mind-blowing, mind-blowing experience. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, our pal Bill Hader. Of course, you know him from his time on Saturday Night Live. He was often an impressions guy. He did an incredible Vincent Price. Exactly what all the kids wanted to hear, a perfect Vincent Price impression. But his most famous character was Stefan from Weekend Update. I mean, I'm sure you remember Stefan, right? New York's hottest club is taste. Nightlife designer Tranny Griffith is back with an all-new club that answers the question, huh? (laughs) Don't look for a bouncer. There isn't one. Instead, the door is guarded by ten jacked homeless guys in old-fashioned bathing suits. (laughs) 
Bill left Saturday Night Live in 2013, and he's been in movies like Trainwreck, Inside Out, uh, Sausage Party. He also co-starred with Fred Armisen in the IFC show Documentary Now, which features elaborate parodies of the greatest documentaries of all time. If you've ever wanted to see Grey Gardens as a found footage horror movie, now's your chance. His latest project is a TV show called Barry. Hater stars as the show's title character, Barry Berkman. He's an ex-Marine turned low-rent hitman in Ohio turned aspiring actor in L.A. It sounds like a comedy, and it is. There were a lot of great jokes in it, but it's also really dark. It's not cute or especially stylish about the ways that it shows violence and trauma. And in that way, even though the premise is a little preposterous, Barry is very honest. Hader co-created the show and directed the pilot in a number of other episodes. And the feelings are real. They come from the man. Here's a little bit from Barry's first season, which just premiered. Barry just screwed up a hit. His clients spotted him hugging the guy he was supposed to kill, an aspiring actor named Ryan. In this scene, Barry is in a hotel room and he comes clean to his partner, Fuchs, played by the great Stephen Root. Something really, really cool happened, okay? Okay. I followed Ryan yesterday and uh, he went to this theater to take an acting class and I ended up doing a scene with him from True Romance. True Romance is a movie. Yeah, it's L.A. theaters. I guess all the scenes they do are from movies. Point is... I was really good. And uh, afterwards, I, I hung out with all of them. Them? The acting class, and they're super nice. The whole class, including the guy you were supposed to burn? Ryan Madison, yeah. No, he's a great dude. And uh, I don't know, they just made me feel really good about myself, you know? And uh, you know how you and I talk all the time about my purpose? You think acting could be your purpose? I don't know. I just, I, I, don't, I, I just feel really motivated right now or something. Like, but, it made me feel really good. Okay, but what about what we do together, Barry? Well, you know, they told me a very small percentage of actors actually make a living acting, you know? So yeah. Most of them have day jobs. So oh. I just figured, you know, I do night hits or oh, something. Oh, oh, oh. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Bill Hayer, welcome back to Bullseye. Hey, nice buddy. to see you. Yeah, good to see you too, man. Um, I didn't... I guess I hadn't thought ever thought about it, but I didn't know that you hadn't directed anything before. Yeah, no, I hadn't. Because you're one of the most borderline compulsive uh, film nerds that yeah. I've ever spoken with on this yeah. show. And I'm including like whatever lifelong movie director, Ryan Johnson or whatever, yeah, right. is included yeah. in that. You're right up there with them. Elvis Mitchell, you're yeah. right on that list. Yeah, when I get around those guys, we have a really fun conversation that it's <laughs> outside people, I think, looks like we're speaking a different language. You know? Why do you think that is that you'd never tried to do that? Well, I think because, you know, I moved out to L.A. in 1999 to do that, and I didn't have any money, so I was just PAing and stuff like that, and, and that you know, making money as a crew person, you know, takes up all your time. And then I would be done. And I would have no energy to do anything. And so that coupled with you come to L.A. and everybody wants to do that. And I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was the only one that wanted to do that. And so you get a bit insecure and a bit intimidated. And then you also just don't want to be just another person with final draft on their laptop in a coffee shop. You know what I mean? You kind of, so I would keep it to myself more, I think. And then the third thing I would say is I had that thing. I don't know if you 
can relate to this or but but what i liked was the best thing you know it was so if i made something it had to stand up to you know spinal tap or dr strange love or taxi driver or jaws or whatever it was you know, I put too much pressure on myself. So I would make little things and I would start editing them and I would go, this sucks, you know, and I would discard it. So the good thing about doing sketch was that it was weirdly disposable. You know, you went up, you do, or, or improv, you would do an improv show and it was just, well, that went good or well, that didn't go good. Let's move on. There's a great interview with uh, Ira Glass where he talks about the point in your career that no one tells you about is the point where your tastes outstrip your abilities. Yeah. So you have gotten to the point where you have taste. You know what – you can recognize something that's good. You can look at your thing and say, oh, but this isn't that. Exactly. And it's and it's a – that's a much more eloquent way of putting it. <laughs> but it is, it is a thing where you look at it and just say, uh, I just don't have it. And what – the good people, um, everyone, if you go back and look at them, even Scorsese made these great short films and stuff, but who's that knocking on my door? It took years to make, and then he came out, and some people liked it, some people didn't. It got him a, it got him a job doing a, a Roger Corman movie. You know, It wasn't until Mean Streets, it wasn't until his third feature that people went, whoa, this is really good. So everyone's journey is, is different. I think there's also a, a, a weird perspective that it gives you to work on a film set. And this is from, I mean, I've worked on a film set five days in my life or whatever. Yeah. But like uh, from, you know, my best buddy was a PA and uh, whatever the lowest level of producer is on things for the first eight or ten years that he lived out here. And the things that I remember him telling me about were that at the PA level – Half or sometimes two thirds of the people who are your coworkers are so incompetent mm-hmm. that you can't believe that they could have ever gotten a job. Yeah, but then you know everyone else pretty much is hyper competent. Yeah, <laughs> and so you get this weird like either you get I guess a confidence boost from the fact that you're there working hard and the other people who's someone's nephew yeah aren't, uh, or you're just like I don't I, how how do you ever and yeah, it's also so all con- like com- yeah. the, the competency part is so all consuming. Yeah, yeah. You just, I mean, I, yeah. You would call those people furniture. That's what we call those people. <laughs> we would go, oh, that person's just furniture. You would, you know, they they're just useless. But yeah, I mean, I I just know that when I was on m- movie sets, it it at first it made it seem so impossible because it was so big and this giant army of people making a thing, and you're so exhausted and you're just to try to keep your persistence of vision, that was a hard thing because each day is different, a new problem, and you just go, oh, gosh, I hope this all cuts together. I hope, you know, we're all telling the same story. That's the kind of thing that I learned over time, what makes a, a bad product. I think we might share some personality traits. I feel like I almost like lucked into having any kind of career at all because I am the kind of person who's terrified to try and do something really special and amazing because I feel like I could never actually achieve what I wish it would be. Exactly. 
But then one day in college, I walked to the college radio station, and you know, you get a show on the college radio station, and you have to fill that time. Yeah, you can't not show up. Like right. that's not one of the choices. So the fact that I've you know done this dumb show once a week for. 19 years or whatever. Yeah, and I knew about this show and when I got SNL, I mean, you know, 2005, it was, you know yeah, what I mean? But, like, I imagine SNL was, like, uh, a similar thing. Like, one of the things about Saturday Night Live is that it's live. Yeah. And you have to do it. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, my God, no, I hosted last weekend and I was a wreck all week. I mean, I had friends who... Who've only known me post SNL, and they went, "Wow, you seemed uh, like you're having a nervous breakdown." I was like, "Oh no, that's just my SNL face, which is <laughs> I'm just very focused." And um, you know, and Lauren Michaels, to his credit, came down before the show and went, "You know, will you relax." <laughs> He's like, "Stop." worrying have fun he's like you're gonna be fine i go i know this is just my process <laughs> you know as i kind of have a flip out and you know the thing that uh alex bays used to run update he would always say to me you know after everything i'd run up to him was that good was that was that good was that all right and go, yes bill stop you know because i don't even really hear the audience We'll continue my conversation with Bill Hader after a short break. He'll tell me about the influence his folks had on his, frankly, amazing taste in film. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from the NPR Wine Club. Discover hand-selected wines from award-winning vineyards around the world. Learn the stories behind each one and enjoy unique bottles inspired by your favorite NPR shows all with the convenience of home delivery. A special welcome offer includes a bottle of weekend edition Cabernet Sauvignon. If you're 21 years or older, join in the fun at nprwineclub.org. NPR's Code Switch tackles race and identity in America with humanity and humor. You'll laugh, you'll learn, you'll get uncomfortable. It's worth it. Find Code Switch on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bill Hader. Together with the legendary Henry Winkler, he stars on the TV show Barry, which just premiered on HBO. I read an interview recently with Norm MacDonald, and I don't know, I mean, we're roughly the same age, and Norm MacDonald was my hero when I was Oh, teenager. yeah, on Update. I mean, he was in real, yeah. yeah. The, the, it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. Yeah, him and Update with Downey writing was kind of the, the golden. And he talked about the fact that he regularly had panic attacks at Saturday Night Live, including on the air. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, Norm MacDonald though in some ways he appears to be completely insane, yeah. he's a very cool customer. Yeah, he is. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, I've never met the man, but... Uh, he's very know. cool, yeah. And it really uh, it really blindsided me, that fact and that insight into what his actual experience in that world was. Because I thought, you know, well, it, it, his anxiety attacks weren't about the head of NBC not liking him for making fun of O.J. Simpson. Yeah, they just were just doing about, it. Yeah, yeah, he seemed like a real ballsy guy. Yeah. yeah. And that, oh, even he got... I think it's the week is really hard on you. And when you do... I had a panic attack on 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 air once when I was playing Julian Assange. 
and people have watched it and they can't tell, but I, I knew that I started sweating and I started, I could, when I, my things where I couldn't project my voice, I would get very quiet and people can't hear me because, you know, I would just, I would start to just crumble. I remember I was a Ronald Reagan robot once in a cold open and I couldn't project. I just didn't project my voice and, and uh, Seth Meyers went, "Oh, is there something wrong with the microphone or whatever?" I go, "No, no, no. I'm I'm having a I'm having a panic panic attack." <laughs> but even other cast members, and I don't want to say their names, it's it's you know have come to me and said, "Oh no, I had a full on panic attack," or I had one cast member just like left, just flew home, <laughs> just when I can't, I need, I just my brain's a little broken, you know what I mean, and and. I, you know, for, so I missed a show for a week and I get it, you know, cause it's a lot of accumulative stress. But you did it for eight years and you were good at it. Yeah, I know. And it was hard the whole time. It was never. Do you know you were good at it? I, I know I was good at it. Yeah. I never, I look at it and I'm someone that's very much going like, ah, geez, I, I again, what we're talking about in my head, I'm projecting this. And then when I see it, I'm like, oh, I can hear my voice in that impression a little too much. Or, oh, gosh, I wish my physicality was a little different. I thought I was doing this, but instead it looks like that. And um, and that can be exhausting to talk to people about where they go, Bill, it went great. Like, relax. Um, but I, for me, it's, it's mostly, um, yeah, going like, okay, that was good. And I, I was happy on on Saturday that I kind of said, oh, I'm just going to have fun, you know, and throw that out and hang with the cast and just goof around and, and, and just have a good time. I want to play a clip of you doing Stefan on uh, the recent Saturday Night Live that <laughs> you hosted. And Stefan is like a what is his setup like a nightlife correspondent or something? Yeah, he's supposed to tell people tourists in New York where to go. Um, and you know, this is this is, was uh, maybe your best known recurring character oh, on Saturday doubt. Night Live. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of Vincent Price fans out there. Yeah, no, but this was the thing that when people come up to me, this is usually the thing they talk about. And I, you know, I think I said this the last time you were on the show, but I sincerely, I think it's the funniest recurring character. I on Saturday Night Live. Oh, that's nice. Of ever. (laughs) Thanks. It's just usually is just this list of weird specifics that John Mulaney or you and John Mulaney or... Yeah, John Mulaney and and I and um, I remember once a guy Joe Mandy had thrown in a couple that they used, but but mostly it's Mulaney and um, and then between dress and air, he would he would change things around or he would show them to me as I was walking out. Sometimes I'm reading them for the first time. But a lot of times it's it's a lot of time it's it's him kind of as I'm walking out like oh this got changed to this, and I go okay, <laughs> you know this character is now called Gay Leota and I go okay, <laughs> and uh, and and then I'm saying it for the first time on air, but he's told me and I start laughing. Um, but what also is happening is that the cue card guys are laughing, Seth would be laughing, Chris Kelly, our stage manager, is right off screen and. He he's laughing really hard, and I'm a soft touch man. I laugh really easy. I I just laugh. Well, I mean, that's a pretty funny set. Let's listen. If you're drunk in Midtown, doing cheap coke off your laundry card, I have just the place for you. 
New York's hottest club is Gersh. Inspired by true events. This former CVS, which became a Chase Bank and then became a CVS again, has a familiar yet troubling feel. Like when Larry King would play himself in a movie. I hadn't read that before. That was a new thing Mulaney put in. That was the Larry King thing. Like, that's a good example. Like, and then when he came out, Mulaney came out as my lawyer, Shy, the piss artist. And, um, and he, I, I just, you know, I'm supposed to whisper in his ear. So I go, I just said nothing. And then he whispered, uh, my girlfriend works at Yoshinoa Beef Ball. <laughs> A, a Japanese themed chain restaurant that's yeah, only in on the West Coast. Yeah, it's only on the West Coast. And it just just to again, just it's just people mostly John throwing rocks at me to make me break. And it works. I want to play another clip from Barry, which is my guest Bill Hader's new show. He stars in it and co created it and directed a bunch of it. Um, including this episode. So Barry is a hitman who uh, takes a shine to an acting class accidentally. And his in this scene, he is talking, he's basically trying to talk, accidentally trying to talk his way into this acting class. He's come to one and accidentally been involved in it and thought this is kind of amazing. And it had never occurred to him that something could be this magical. And he stops Henry Winkler's character. His name is Cousineau. He's the acting teacher. In the parking lot mm-hmm. and is talking to him through his window and Cousineau basically tells him, you stink, go home. Yeah. You want to know what I'm good at? I'm good at killing people. Yeah, when I got back from Afghanistan, I uh, was really depressed. You know, like I didn't leave my house for months and uh, this friend of my dad's, he's, uh, he's like an uncle to me. He, uh, he helped me out and he gave me a purpose. He told me that, that what I was good at over there could be useful here. And uh, it's a job, you know? I, the money's good. And uh, these people I take out, like, they're, they're bad people. You know, like, they're pieces of shit. Um, but lately, you know, I've, like, I'm not sleeping. And uh, that depressed feeling's back, you know? Like, like I know there's more to me than that. And he says, oh, did you improvise that? Yeah, yeah, he thinks it was from a play, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you worry that you would be uh, paralyzed by your influences and that you have, you're such a connoisseur um, of film especially mm-hmm. um, and comedy that that would tighten you up especially writing in a world that has there's there's some really really great hitman things yeah like all of 1990 all of the 90s was people trying to make cool hitman things and some of them are real good well yeah we didn't like that we we didn't we wanted to be more real and kind of you know when people read the synopsis they go oh it's like get shorty and you go no it's not you know like get shorty you could make a get shorty you know kind of version of this but we wanted 
how he was feeling to be real and we wanted the violence to be real and brutal because it's a world that he doesn't want to be in anymore so you should show it for what it is um instead of cool or or funny you know doing some sort of weekend at bernie's bit with a body and he runs into you know uh, someone from the acting class and has to pretend that they're not dead you know it would have been easy to do that stuff but you know again i just feel like it would be selling it out and also kind of weirdly inappropriate you know what i mean um so um that's the kind of tightrope that the show walks you know of saying yeah we you know the violence is kind of uh what violence is is it's brutal and sad and you know, he's confronted in the was, second episode with the father of someone that he's responsible for their death. And he's never seen that before. He go, oh, right. Someone dies and all these other people are affected, you know, and this this father is never going to be the same again. And it's that guilt, you know, and him and then the acting people going, yeah, yeah, no, those feelings you have, you know, use those, <laughs> you know, in your work. And so it's just him trying to get into tune, you know, and just trying to access some emotion so he could be a human you know and that's kind of what the story is i mean i think the thing about people saying oh those emotions are important use them in your work is that it's both completely true Mm -hmm. and it is like so gross and embarrassing yeah and you know what i mean and that it is both of those things at the same time makes it real hard to i guess be an artist (laughs) yeah i know it's like that's the weird thing is that's why people get cagey about talking about it like the you know the because you just don't think of it that way you're just kind of instinctively doing something and then people try to dissect it and go well you know what it is it's this you know and you go i I don't want to think about this because i have to go back and keep doing it and i don't want to be aware of it while i'm doing it you know um but yeah i mean to back to your earlier question about influences and things like that i mean it, it was trying hard and i don't know how well i did it you know this season and hopefully we'll get more seasons to keep working on it but um was just trying to follow the characters you know and and base it more on um you know i would watch the documentary restrepo and watch those guys and i can go yeah what if one of those guys became a hitman and you know what i mean um instead of looking at movies um, let's play another clip from my guest Bill Hader's uh, new show, which is called Barry. It's on HBO. Um, this is you in acting class. Henry Winkler, who plays your acting teacher, Cousineau, is on stage. Uh, you have shot one of the people in the class. Shot mm-hmm. in, well, you you were I was you didn't bit, actually yeah, do I, the I, shooting. Well, we'll see. You You'll were, see it yeah. from the show. Yeah. Okay, but the point is that you had you had you accidentally made a connection with this guy who got you into the acting class, mm-hmm. and now that person has been shot and killed. Mm-hmm. And Henry Winkler is announcing this to the class. Mm-hmm. Now I wish I could say that this was the first time that one of my students was gunned down in the street, but it's not. And as much as it pains me to say it. It is most likely not the last. So, where do we go from here? I say, we do what Ryan would have wanted us to do, and we use it. Sorry, Mr. Kusner, what's that mean? Use it? 
Use Ryan's death the way that you are feeling right this second. The sorrow, the rage, the terror. You know, I use my past all the time in my work. If I want pure sorrow, I call up Princess Diana's death. Or the day that my dad fell off the roof when I was a kid. Kaplunk. <laughs> Kerplunk. Yeah, he added that. <laughs> Kerplunk. <laughs> there is um this character is so it's the most broadly drawn character, at least in the first few episodes, even more than the Chechen gangsters. Mm-hmm. And uh I, I think he has such a sincere quality to him. Um and he's so apparently sweet that it really lets him behave monstrously. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, he's just doing his thing, man. <laughs> yeah, no, he's just, I mean, well, you know, in that that world, in that little place, in that uh, acting class, he is a king. He's the the ruler. He's the decider. He's the, the whole thing. And then the minute he steps out of that, he's just an out-of-work actor. It was interesting to watch Henry, you know, saying that to him, you know, when you're in here, you're a king, but when you step out, you're an out-of-work actor. And he went, yeah, no, I get it. And and played that, you know, in the scenes, which I thought was uh, really great. Have you taken acting classes, like acting class, acting classes? No, not really. Um, I took an acting class at a community college once where we did some, but we didn't really do scene work that I remember. Um... I took an acting class at San Francisco State University, and uh, I remember that I was supposed to go to the zoo, observe an animal, and then come back and act like the animal. mm -hmm. I didn't go to the zoo. Yeah. In retrospect, I should have. I've gone to the zoo a lot lately, and it's actually really a lot of fun. Yeah, to act like an animal. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like there's more. If if we got a second season, there's more of that stuff that we could do. You know, it it was – because we only have 30 minutes, it's a lot of – having to try to streamline things and going, oh, gosh, we had this big idea, but now we can't do it because we have to service the story we're telling, so we got to cut all this stuff. And, you know, um, so I would love to get more of that stuff in if we got to do more. There's a beautiful scene in the pilot episode. I think it's in the pilot episode. It might be in the second episode where he, your character, Barry, has stumbled into this acting class and ends up going out afterwards with everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, Barry is a a hitman. He's fundamentally alienated from others. Yeah, you know, by design, right? Yeah. And it is a it's a very beautiful moment of him, almost like recognizing that he could enjoy human contact. Yeah, yeah, that he could be a person. Yeah, that's a be in a community. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I relate to that. You know, I, I remember moving to L.A. and not knowing a whole lot of people and just, you know, you, you latch on to people who are in the same place that you are. You know, you just kind of, you know, just hold on to them for dear life. And then out of insecurity and all this other stuff, especially when you're young, then there's infighting and you know, people being jealous that this person got a job on this thing. And, you know, I, you know, I remember a friend got a job as a PA on AI and, oh my God, that's because we were doing these super low budget movies 
and how this group of people were kind of pissed and it was just so silly. It was just really dumb and just being young and insecure. But it means a lot to have a place where you belong. Yeah, yeah, and I think he realized that. I mean, for me, that was SNL. That scene was, that scene is me, my first season with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Fred Armisen and Rick Dratch and all these, and Seth Meyers, all these people at that table getting drinks and me just thinking, gosh, it'd be great to be a part of this company and I I just feel like I'll learn so much and become a better performer and writer if I just can hang with them and not get fired. I feel a little weird and this is something that the audience wouldn't know but I feel a little weird because your dad is right over there. Oh yeah, my dad's here. And you've actually you've talked about your dad a little bit on the show. Mm-hmm. I guess imagine he's not sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> What would you tell me about him? <laughs> oh, my dad's great. My dad's the reason I, I like... I, he liked all the good stuff when I was growing up. It was, you know, showing me Monty Python at a very young age. He showed me Clockwork Orange when I was way too young. <laughs> um, the Wild Bunch, you know, all these things. I got kind of this excitement being exposed to these, you know, the good stuff. You know, uh, Spinal Tap we used to watch constantly. And Saturday Night Live, and you know my parents were very young parents, and so they let us watch what they were watching. And I think my obsession with movies kind of came out of that because every we would always just rent movies, and I'd watch whatever they were watching. Or seen Raising Arizona when it first came out on VHS, and that but seems then we very inappropriate. You must have been like nine or something. Yeah, it was nine. And then I, I told this story before, but he also helped me. We, we, you know, we watched the movie The Abyss, and there's a scene where Ed Harris is having a problem in his marriage. And uh, later in the movie, this door, this big metal door is about to close, and if it closes, he's going to drown inside the submarine. <laughs> and uh, he wedges his hand right as the door is closing, and his wedding ring stops the door and, and saves his life. And I remember my dad going, oh, get it. (laughs) (laughs) And at that age, again, I was like 9 or 11, yeah, 10 or 11, going, okay, that's lame. Okay, yeah, don't do that. (laughs) That's stupid. Well, Bill Hader, thanks so much. It's always always good to see you here. I'm so happy for the new show and all your success. Oh, thanks, buddy. It's good seeing you, man. Bill Hader. You can catch him on Barry, Sunday nights at 7.30 Eastern on HBO. His other TV show, Documentary Now, has been renewed for a third season. Look for that to hit the airwaves in 2019. We like to wrap up every episode of Bullseye with a culture tip from me. It's called The Outshot. So for what I hear, Van Morrison hates performing. He doesn't really tour very much, and when he does, I feel like people always tell me it isn't that good, that he seems like maybe he doesn't want to be there. But I can tell you with absolute certainty that there was a time that he was good at performing, great at performing. And I know this because I've got it on tape. When you got a headache Let
It's Too Late to Stop Now was Van Morrison's first live record. He taped it across three months of touring in 1973 in the summer, just as his solo career was peaking. It's partly a tribute to his heroes. Ain't Nothing You Can Do that we just heard is a Bobby Blue Bland song, for example. It's partly the totally revolutionary songs he was putting on his studio records back then. And it's partly a fond, almost nostalgic goodbye to the great songs he sang with his first band, Them, in the 60s. Somehow Brown Eyed Girl didn't even make the cut. But when he gets to Gloria, which was kind of an old-fashioned song even when it hit in 1964, the crowd lights up the way you do when someone plays your favorite song when you were a kid. Too Late to Stop Now was maybe the first live album with no overdubs, no studio sweetening. And it feels that way. It feels real. When you listen, the audiences in these big places, the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, the Rainbow in London, feel like they're right there with you. Or, or maybe you feel like you're right there with them. Morrison built his best work on a cycle of control and release. You can hear both of those things on the album. When it comes to control, I mean, he was a famous perfectionist. Apparently, Moondance, which is pretty much his signature song, isn't on the record because somebody messed up one note in a guitar part. Anyway, I read that on the Internet. So on the record, the band feels tight, like not square, dorky tight but focused, focused enough to deliver a real rave-up R&B song, you know? Focused enough to make you feel caught in the music, bound up. And Morrison emphasizes that tightness in his singing. He clips his loose lyrics into tight bursts. He feels like he's punching the band sometimes with his words. The sky is crying and it's time to go home. And we should hurry to the car from the phone. Set by the fire and try out our clothes. outside from the sky. The 
The whole thing is a thrill. I mean, it is a show. It is these songs built to flatten any crowd in 10 minutes, crowds on the Chitlin circuit that had no interest in indulging performers. And then also songs patterned on those songs, the ones that Van Morrison had written himself. It's basically music in a form that we know works. But what's so special about Morrison is the way he blends that R&B band tightness, the builds towards ecstasy, and then he adds a rock and roll singer's, I guess, wildness. By the time he's bringing the show home, singing Caravan, he's worked the crowd around his finger and he is just playing with them. It doesn't feel like an act anymore. It feels almost unmoored. You start to wonder if like, he's drunk or if he's got the spirit or just where he is. But wherever he is, you're there with him. You can imagine people in the audience in tears as he brings back that horn line one more time. And at some point, his lyrics become almost yelps, abstract sounds. Turn it up! The finale on the record is Cypress Avenue. Seems like it might have been an encore. It's from Morrison's folky masterpiece, Astral Weeks. And it starts out folky and beautiful, but then it starts to spiral upward. And all your revelations... It gets wilder and wilder as it passes, closer and closer to climax. Until finally... It stops. And you're left there, breathless. It's too late to stop now! That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Here's an update on the status of the park. If you listen to past programs, you know that there was a big pile of dirt covered in a tarp. Well, they took away the tarp, and now people are taking away the dirt. Uh, By the bucket, like a sort of dirt buffet. 
Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He spends most of his time writing park updates about MacArthur Park. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shana Deloria. Our senior producer at Maximum Fun is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team. They kindly let us use it, as did their label, Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past Bullseye programs, all of them are free. You can find them on our website at MaximumFun.org. We also post them to our YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to and get easily shareable versions of all of these interviews. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share interviews, uh, talk to you about pop culture, tip you off to guests, all kinds of cool stuff. You can find that by searching for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on Facebook. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.